Welcome to Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. As we continue our look at portraits of people who pray, we come to the life of Paul. Today, you will hear part one of a message from Ephesians chapter 3 as we look at the power behind Paul's life and witness as a believer. We encourage you to open up your Bibles and follow along with Pastor Roy as he looks at Paul's prayer life. I have a little bit of an abbreviated message, but uh, I'm going to speak on Paul today, a man with a power in portraits of people who pray. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 14. We're actually going to be looking at a couple different prayers that Paul prayed um, in Ephesians. Beginning in verse 14, Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever One of Paul's desires in this prayer, and also his prayer in Ephesians 1, was that the Ephesian people would grasp the power of God in their lives. They had been subject to a lot of magic uh, powers. Uh, They also were involved in the, uh, many people were involved in the worship of Artemis, uh, which was a cult and idolatry. Uh, There was a lot of money being made, and actually if you flip back to Acts chapter 19 for a moment, beginning in verse 23, there was a riot that broke out in Ephesus, and it was all over this worship of Artemis. And so just to give us a little bit of background uh, that helps us understand why Paul might have prayed the way he did, in Acts 19, beginning in verse 23... It says, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. And notice the way there is capitalized because he's talking about the way of Christ and the gospel. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in no little business for the craftsmen. They were getting quite wealthy. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know we received a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself 
who is worshipped throughout the whole province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. So this was kind of the background of Paul writing this prayer. And praying this prayer is because they were looking to idolatry for their power and their wisdom. And Paul is saying, for this reason, I am kneeling before the Father. There's a mystery of the gospel. There is a power given to the church and believers that we as believers must grasp. If we are going to live victoriously for Christ, we need to live that way. So the first thing we see here is Paul's power came through prayer. We have to understand that if we are going to live powerful Christian lives, it comes through prayer. Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Even hearing Katie's testimony this morning, it was the power of God and the power of prayer that empowered her to do what she was able to do, not in her own strength, her own power, her own wisdom, but in the power and strength of the Lord because of prayer. And this is why I've been emphasizing corporate prayer. If we really want to see God move at Bethesda Church in our community, in our nation, in our world, it will come when God's people get serious about serious prayer before the Lord. We see Paul's posture in prayer as well was one of kneeling. Look back again in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now, in Paul's day, and even prior to that, in the Gospels, the usual position oftentimes was standing. Uh, when the Pharisee and the publican were in the temple, it says they stood praying. And that oftentimes they would stand. Yes, there was kneeling as well, but oftentimes people would stand. This kneeling in prayer shows, again, the humility and submission of Paul. 
that he was showing the worthiness of God, the authority of God Almighty, that he was worthy to be worshipped and kneeling as an act of worship before the Lord. He's the only one that we kneel before to pray. I like this uh, post that Anthony put on our Facebook church page, and I don't know, it didn't say exactly where the quote came from, but here it is. If we felt certain of visible results within six seconds of every prayer, there'd be holes in the knees of every pair of Christian-owned pants in the world. Now, we know there's not always answers in six seconds, but understand that God hears every prayer, and every prayer is powerful when we pray it in faith. Secondly, Paul was committed to praying for the church. We see this in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. For this reason, Paul says, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And how important it was. And what I want you to know was he began his prayer with thanksgiving. He says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. He was thankful that the Gentiles had accepted Christ and the gospel. It had come to the Jews, but Paul had taken that message to the Gentiles, and now they were embracing the gospel and believing the gospel, and Paul was grateful that they had been transformed by the power of God. And he was a man who continued in prayer. The reason I highlighted the faith and love is because this is something that Paul focuses on in other churches as well. We see this in the church in Colossae as well as in church in Thessalonica. The faith and love that spring from a church that is bathed in prayer. Let's look at those uh, verses. Colossians 1, 3, and 4 says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have what? Heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. It seems like when thankful prayer is going up, there's a faith that springs from that and there's a love that comes. There's faith toward God and love toward one another. And the Bible said the world will know we are Christians. How? By our love. And how is that going to come about? From people who pray in faith. The more we pray in faith and the more we trust God, the more love there will be between one another and the more the presence of God will be here and people will sense the love of God in Bethesda Church. And it would be a wonderful thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says the same thing. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says the same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says the same thing in Romans when he talks about being justified by faith. We have peace with God. And then later in that same passage, he says, he talks about hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So that idea of faith and love go together and it springs out of a heart of prayer. We will, if we want to see our faith grow, we need to talk to the Lord in prayer. If we want our love for one another to grow, it will come as we seek the Lord in prayer. Paul talked about that they would have love in chapter 1, verse 15, for all the saints, Jews and Gentiles alike, there would be love across that racial boundary, that cultural boundary. 
and God would bring love there as they did that. Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And I think we need to be reminded that Jesus Christ is praying for us uh, on behalf, our behalf before the Father. Just as we see in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, Jesus praying for uh, believers in him. Paul's also address in prayer. His address in prayer, we see this again in verse 14 of chapter 3. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. If we go back to chapter 1, we'll see a similar thing. He says in verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So here he calls him Father in chapter 1. He calls him glorious Father because the source of all true glory is in the Father. And glory and power are often used synonymously in the Bible. In Romans 6, 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead... Through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. Notice he says, Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father or the power of the Father. His power and glory go together. Paul also prays regularly for his fellow believers. He requests prayer for himself. And I think that's wise as a pastor I always am thankful for people who pray for me regularly. He says in first, or Ephesians 6.19, Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. And why did Paul pray this? Because we're facing a spiritual battle. If we look in Ephesians chapter 6, flip over there for a moment and look in verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are facing a spiritual battle. Spiritual forces are at work, even as I bring this sermon today. And everywhere God's gospel is preached, there are spiritual forces at work. For those of you who do not believe in Jesus, that you would not put your faith in Jesus today that you would not do it next week, that you would not do it next month or even next year, that you would never do it. There are spiritual forces at work working against the gospel to keep you from coming to faith in Christ. There are also spiritual forces at work keeping you as believers from knowing God's love in a greater and deeper way and growing in the knowledge of God. There was a man named Jeremiah Lamphere who in New York City during the 1850s, there were years of tension when the shadow of war loomed over America. There were strikes, depressions, tailing banks, long jobless lines, and an air of simmering violence. In this setting, Lamphere accepted a call as a full-time city evangelist. He walked the streets, he knocked on doors, he put up posters, and he prayed constantly, all to no visible results. 
As his discouragement increased, Lamphier looked for some kind of new idea for a possible breakthrough. New York was a business town. He said maybe the men would come to a luncheon. So he nailed up his signs calling for a noon lunch in the old Dutch church on Fulton Street. When the hour came, he sat and waited until finally a single visitor arrived. Several minutes later, a couple of stragglers peeked through the door. The handful of them had a nice meal. Lamphere gave his idea another go on the following week. Twenty men attended. At least it was a start. But then forty came on the third week. The men were getting to know each other by this time, and one of them suggested he'd be willing to come for food and prayer every day. Lamphere thought it was a good sign. He ramped up his efforts for a daily meal and prayer time. Before long, the building was overflowing. The luncheon had to move again. The demand was so high. The most intriguing element of the Fulton Street Revival, as they called the phenomenon, was the ripple effect. Offices began closing for prayer at noon. Fulton Street was the talk of the town, with men telegraphing prayer news back and forth between New York City and other cities. Yes, other cities had started their own franchises. Other godly meetings were launching in New York. The center of the meeting was prayer, and it was okay to come late or leave early as needed. Men stood and shared testimonies. This was not a place for the well-known preachers of the day. This was about the working class, businessmen who wanted to share the things of God. Some historians went so far as to refer to the Fulton Street Revival as a third great awakening because it lasted for two years and, listen to this, saw as many as one million decisions for Christ. Why? Because God's people took prayer seriously. And I want to challenge us as a church to pray big to pray bigger than we've ever prayed before, to pray in more faith than we've ever prayed before because we have a big God. Now to Him, He says in verse 20, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us. I'm going to close with this story this morning. Travel back 200 years in church history to John Newton. The slave trader turned pastor and hymn writer. He would receive almost unbelievable answers to his prayers because he believed in what he called large asking. When explaining what he meant, Newton would often cite a legendary story of a man who asked Alexander the Great to give him a huge sum of money in exchange for his daughter's hand in marriage. Alexander agreed, and he told the man to request of Alexander's treasure whatever he wanted. So the father of the bride went and asked for an enormous amount. The treasurer was startled and said, He can't give out that kind of money without a direct order. Going to Alexander, the treasurer argued that even a small fraction of the money requested would more than serve the purpose. No, replied Alexander, let him have it all. I like that fellow. He does me honor. He treats me like a king and proves by what he asks that he believes me to be both rich and generous. 
Newton concluded in the same way we should go to the throne of God's grace and present petitions that express honorable views of the love, riches, and bounty of our King. Let's stand for a word of prayer. We will continue this message next week. But as you bow your heads and close your eyes, I just want to ask you this morning, how's your prayer life? Is God calling you to a deeper level of prayer? As I think about Katie sharing this morning, I'm reminded of the prayer warrior we had in Virginia that prayed for 20 years, 20 years every day, more than once a day, that our little church in Virginia would be able to support missions by a million dollars a year. And that happened a few years ago. Because he took seriously, now he's praying for two million. <laughs> you see, sometimes the reason we don't see answers to prayer is because we are not praying with enough faith. I know I need to pray more in faith and I need to ask bigger. We have a big God. What does he want to do at Bethesda Church? What does he want to do with our Super Summer Jam? I hope you are praying about our Super Summer Jam for this summer. That we will not only sow seeds, but we will see boys and girls, men and women, come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you are discouraged because of some trial that you are going through right now in your life. I want you to know that you can take that trial to the Lord. He hears you. And he wants to meet you where you are. And maybe he's not going to remove the trial, but he's going to sustain you through it and grow you through it and reveal himself to you through it. Would you pray and say, God, would you please teach me what you want me to learn? You see, one of the things that Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, and we'll get to it next week, is that he said, our glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. What God wants to do in prayer is to reveal himself to us in a greater way. But it requires us being quiet before the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you were to die right now, you would die in your sin and you would go to hell. My friend, the opportunity is there that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and paid the penalty for your sin in full. And my prayer for you is that you would give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and you would humble yourself and give your life to him today. That's my prayer. If you are here, would you please consider your life, your eternal destiny before God? The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the only way we can be in a right relationship with God is to confess our sin to a holy, righteous God. It's not through baptism. It's not through good works. It's not through giving money to the church, being a good person. All those things are great, but they don't wash away your sin. Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood that we could be forgiven and that's why Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes.
And so this is a holy moment for you. God has brought you here, maybe to change your life. If you don't know Christ, would you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ today? Those of you who do, would you be reminded of the power of prayer now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to his power that is at work within us. God wants to empower you and empower me to be his son, his daughter, his child. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.